standing up in McKinney. This is According to Callus. We're coming back to you on the 2nd of November, episode 522. Today we're going to be talking about the two Babylons. Before we get to that, let me remind you the best way you can help me make a difference, the best way you can, quite frankly, help my show grow into something. It's already getting there, but every little bit helps is to follow the program. Go to your favorite podcatcher, subscribe, follow the program. We're on the social media. Again, like, follow, share. Um, MeWe Gab, I'm there too. The Facebook, I've got a page as well as a group. Come and join us. It's lots of fun. <laughs> At least it is for me, right? And we're still on the YouTube uh, it's just audio files, and if you'd be kind enough, if you're feeling particularly motivated to rate and review this program, or rate or review this program, boy, not enough caffeine today, ladies and gentlemen, not enough caffeine. <laughs> It'd be a big help. Uh, one last thing, I want to let you all know, this is my second run-through on this <laughs> on this episode. I had the whole thing recorded, and uh, between my technological glitches and my not being 100%, I managed to delete the whole stinking thing. So we're going to go through this, um, and hopefully uh, there will be enough caffeine on board by the time I get done that it will be worthy of your time to listen. And one last thing before we get to the big show here, let me remind you the Texitconference.com. Texitconference.com is where you need to go to come and join us in Waco, which is next week, the 9th through the 12th. Uh, there are going to be lots of speakers there. It's all about coalition. It's all about uh, improving our independence, improving the Texas sovereignty, whether or not we actually ever achieve full-on independence, every bit we do towards that only makes Texas better. And for that alone, it is worth your time and effort. And oh, by the way, if you go to that texitconference.com and you put in my name in the uh, discount code, there is a discount for you. Go check it out. Callus, happy to be of a help. All right, here we go. On to the show. All right. I want to be clear up front. This book uh, is basically an anti-Catholic polemic. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of the conclusions here. Um, And I, the last thing I want to do is uh, create animosity between my Catholic friends and Catholic family members. This is written in, uh, I think 1853. It started out as a pamphlet And then the actual first printed version came in like 1878, I believe. So this is at the high water, well, one of the high water marks, if you will, of the Catholic Protestant battles that went on for which is the appropriate way to worship Christ our King. Now, on the other hand, I want to say, I think... Then Mr. Alexander or Reverend Alexander Hislop makes a really good argument. He's got lots of evidence, uh, lots of proofs out. It's a solid argument. Um, And that being said, maybe it's not enough. Maybe it's not convincing for you. But as I say, I, there's a difference between deconstruction and understanding what you believe, why you believe it. And I think that If you are a good, solid Catholic, 
this is this is going to hurt your feelings maybe but you'll come through on the other side because if you're solid you know what your faith is and there's got to be legitimate explanations for some of this stuff on the catholic side of the house here and as a as a protestant i got to say some of this stuff mm, i were a lot of it was things i used to think about or be concerned about uh as far as trying to process the differences between the streams of faith here and to be clear if we wanted to turn this into a battle royale where the Catholics are going after the Protestants, the Protestants going after the Catholics, they're both going after the Orthodox, and the Orthodox goes after them and the Orientals, it gets really messy. One of the things I referenced is about a month ago, uh, October the 7th, was the celebration of the Battle of Lepanto. That's where the various uh, factions of Christianity put aside their animosities, their differences, and dealt with the bigger threat. The Islamic threat. Might I humbly suggest that understanding the differences does not necessarily mean that we're going to be at each other's throats. If what's in this book is, or yeah, I guess book is true, that's something that our Catholic brothers and sisters got to sort out. And what's even more interesting is the the Lutheran Church and some of the other uh, more closely associated churches are essentially doing the same things or similar things that are in this book. So like I said, it's a it's a pretty harsh polemic. I did not know that when I picked it up. I was just curious. Had I read the full title ahead of time, I probably would have been full, fully prepared. But when you have a Kindle, it jumps right to the meat of the subject. So here we go. I'm going to read you the full title. The Two Babylons or People Worship Proved to be the Worship of Nimrod and His Wife. <laughs> um. It includes 61 woodcut illustrations from Nineveh, Babylon, Egypt, Pompeii, and the author is the Reverend Alexander Hislop of East Free Church, Aberoth, Scotland. All right, and this is, the version I have is the seventh edition and talks about coming, and it actually does have the date here. Uh Man, I'm sorry. My Roman numerology is pretty sad here. It looks like 71. So 1871, maybe? Yeah, let's go with 1871. And uh, Crossreach Publications did this in 2016. It is, you know, no longer copyrighted, so it can be reprinted. And the opening page says, To the, le- the Right Honorable Lord John Scott, as a testimony of respect for his talents and deep enlightenment and the interest taken to him in the subject of primeval antiquity, as well as the expression of gratitude for the many marks of courtesy and kindness received at his hands, this work is respectfully inscribed by his obliged and faithful servant, the author. And again, December 1857. Okay, um starts off talking about Romanism and talks about how he did a lot of study in classical and oriental literature. And uh, I'm going to read this excerpt from the Evangelical Magazine. The volume before us is on the subject of Romanism is able and interesting. The author is a full man. His scholarship is ripe 
His historical research, deep and accurate, classical and oriental literature and the records of antiquity, he employs with skill and readiness of a master to make good his positions. Rarely indeed within the same space have we seen such a rich variety of learned and curious information arrayed in evidence against assumptions, usages, doctrines, and pretended apostolical origin of Romanism. The tinsel garments of the pretended sanctity he strips off with all the charm Oh, and the charm of the sacred association he scatters to the winds. <laughs> you know, and, uh, in the original uh, recording of this, I I, got, I couldn't help but relate how this is some very flowery language. <laughs> a little bit of a tongue twister, too. You know, in today's day and age, we just don't talk like this anymore. I'm not sure if that's for better or for worse. That being said, keep in mind, the guy is a Scottish Protestant pastor he definitely has an axe to grind it's definitely a polemic so again taking that in mind this is one of the things that you know is talked about all the time you have to understand the context and you have to understand the audience at this time there's definitely some factional fighting between our protestant uh groups as well as the roman catholics and they I guess the best way to put it, we're battling for supremacy in Europe, which is the right way, which is the only way. And to my knowledge, that's really never stopped. And under the guise of ecumenicalism, a lot of these um, disparate churches are coming together, trying to unify. Now, I will tell you, and I've been upfront about this, I'm not necessarily good with the idea of unifying under a single person. I think that's a really bad idea. And if anything, that was one of the things that always caused concern for me. The Bishop of Rome is basically the Vicar of Christ. Again, respectfully, I I can't go there. And, you know, I grew up in what would be an independent church, I guess most closely theologically aligned with Baptist thought and theology. And, you know, there's pastors, there's elders, maybe even deacons, but there's not really a hierarchy beyond that. And there certainly is not a bishop or a pope. So that's a tough thing to wrap my head around. I understand why it exists and I, I'm not suggesting that it's all bad. I just don't, not a fan of concentration of power, whether it's political or spiritual. Um, there's one God in heaven, Right. And I don't need somebody else to intercede, which is another story altogether. But so he's got various chapters here. The distinctive character of the two systems, Trinity and unity, the mother and child. Now, I want to take a little brief pause here. He went through and through different uh, forms of artwork and different um, antiquities kind of shows that the idea of the picture of Madonna and child, right? Uh, Mary and Jesus as a child is the outgrowth of expression of worship coming out of the Chaldean area, which for those of you that don't know, would be essentially Babylon. And as it comes through Greece and Egypt, and then even talks about how it got transferred over into India through Hinduism and their artwork depicts a mother with a little child and they're both essentially being worships or they're as deities, right? And so that's interesting. 
And then he's got subsections about the child in Assyria, Egypt, Greece, and the death of the child and deification of the child and the mother of the child. All this comes together. It's, it's very interesting. Again, it is a polemic, but it's eye-opening and it's helpful in understanding certain things, whether you agree with the conclusions or not. I, it's a fair thing. And I'll get, I'll come back to this again towards the end. It, it's not lost on me that this can solely be interpreted as one thing, or you can look at the bigger picture here. So the idea of perpetually a child or the savior on the cross is something that is, you know, very much present in icons, right? It, it's, it's, it's a constant theme, particularly in the Eastern portion of this situation of Christianity. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. The iconography is in my mind, not necessarily a negative thing. It, it, but it does direct your worship and perhaps maybe that's the really the underlying concern, though that's not how it comes across in the polemic. Okay. That being said, um, he spent some more of the time talking about us and then he, uh, goes on to the baptismal regeneration, which, boy, I, I could see where that goes all over the place. And as I said, myself, I, I haven't bought into the pedo baptism, right? Babies being baptized. Now that I have a little bit better understanding of the Protestant version of it, I guess I can wrap my head around it. Still not ready to buy in. So that's a, that's a giant gap. There's a reason why the Baptists have believers baptism, right? There, there's a reason why there's a commitment that has to proceed the baptism. But again, it could be just a difference of interpretation or a difference of thought. I don't necessarily think that's something that we break fellowship over with our various streams of uh, faith here. Interesting, he does talk about purgatory and where the origins of purgatory might be from. Uh, that was very interesting. Um, and then, of course, he goes through a lot of other things. But the other thing that I found interesting was the rosary and the sacred heart. Now, having been uh, born into a Catholic extended family and my parents both being uh, converted from Catholicism, if you will, uh, this is stuff never really talked about. And honestly, my wife's family, the extended family is Catholic. So I have a lot of respect and admiration for those that are devout on that side of the family, both mine and my wife's, but I've never heard any of them talk about the sacred heart stuff. I mean, I know it's a thing, but I didn't know anything behind it. And he goes into it and explains it in such a way that kind of, it's a little dis, uh, disheartening. The rosary thing I kind of get, but there's other stuff going on behind that too. And again, the, the challenge is, do you impute this on what faithful believers are doing because they don't know any better or they don't understand the origins? I would think not. I mean, essentially, they're worshiping the same Lord. As a, as a Christian, we have to have charity, right, and love for our brothers and sisters. They can be misled or um, given wrong information, but... The same thing's been going on in the Protestant church since its inception, right? We're always reforming. 
<laughs> not necessarily for the best. And, and then it talks about the sovereign pontiff, which is one of the things that I get. I've talked about more than one occasion, the idea of having the vicar of Christ and everybody has to defer to that individual, especially now with the hippie Pope. And I mean, look, I, my Catholic friends have said far worse about the guy. I'm not sure how you work that out. I'm really not. And then he spends some time talking about the red dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, the image of the beast. Now I got to say that he does come across as a bit of a preterist. For those of you that don't know what that means, essentially it just means the things that happened in the revelation of John, right? Have primarily already happened. The majority of the events have already occurred or unfolding as opposed to something that's yet to come in our future. And again, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with that, but I'm it again, a lot of this is open to interpret and then he, interpretation, excuse me. And he, he finishes up with the name of the beast, the number of his name and, and the invisible head of the papacy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> again, uh, not, uh, not, entirely comfortable sharing the commentary because I don't want somebody to think that this is what I believe or that this is where I uh, agree with this. It's just a, like I said, a very powerful polemic. It gives a lot of interesting thoughts and questions. And this is, I'm going to go through his conclusion or the key points briefly, and then I'm going to pivot and I'm going to put out a challenge and a request. So in his conclusion, he basically says that the Church of Rome is, is well, let me, I'm just going to read it. It'd be easier. Is there one who has candidly considered the proof that has been led that now doubts Rome is the apocalyptic, <laughs> oh man, apocalyptic, there we go, Babylon, is there one who will venture to deny that from the foundation of the topmost stone, it is essentially a system of paganism? What then is the practical conclusion to all of this? Let every Christian henceforth ever treated as an outcast from the pale Christianity. Instead of speaking of it as a Christian church, let it be recognized and regarded as a ministry of iniquity, yea, as the very synagogue of Satan. I mean, that's pretty harsh. Hardcore. Well, it's interesting that, well, I'm going to get on to the second part here. Just a moment. But if the guilt and danger to those that adhere to the Roman church, believing it to be the only church where salvation is found, be so great, what must the guilt be with those of the Protestant profession that nevertheless uphold the doomed Babylon? Now you're wondering what this means. The constitution of this land, he's in Great Britain, requires our queen to swear before the crown can be put upon her head, before she could take her seat on the throne, that she believes that the essential doctrines of Rome are idolatrous. All the churches of Britain, endowed and unendowed alike, with voice declare the same. It all proclaim the same system of Rome as a system of blasphemous idolatry. And yet the members of the, these churches can endow and uphold with Protestant money the schools, colleges, and chaplains of this idolatrous system. Now I find this interesting here, keeping in mind that the entire purpose of the creation of the Anglican Church, or if you will, the um, 
Church of England is Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce. And when he didn't get his way, he said, well, we're not going to answer to the Pope anymore. We're going to do our own thing. So basically, it's just a different version of Catholicism, but with a different head. Instead of it being the Pope, or I'm sorry, the Bishop of Rome, it's the King or Queen of England. So I'm not really sure how that works. But again, it, it, it's 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 a harsh polemic. It, but it is it is a thoughtful one, and it is something that requires a little bit of effort to go through it. Then he talks about the king of Italy basically doing battle with the papal uh, throne down there and taking out and suppressing the monasteries. In the space of two years, no less than 54 were suppressed and their property confiscated by the king of Italy. Then he took, talks about how the king of England has put a like number in a into effect in England, even though Great Britain's supposed to be uh, apart from that. He goes on to make some more. And then he does talk about how he's a Scottish uh, Protestant and they don't want anything to do with that. And it seems to me that he's not really a fan of the Church of England as well, uh, clearly. And uh, let's see here. Then he, the uh, part three is basically where he kind of makes the preterist turn here. And, and I don't want to get into that because, again, it's <laughs> it, I think that's the least interesting or the least important part. Although, again, he makes a fairly decent argument here. And he does talk about the Virgin Queen. And so I want to hit on that briefly. There is a corollary between this and what I learned about the uh, people that were attending to the Temple of Athena, right, in ancient times. They were all virgins. They weren't allowed to be touched. And I think this is the corollary he draws with the nuns and the fact that they they have to be... (laughs) I can't think of the word I want to use here. Basically, they got to be pure. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Stay virgins, I, I, but uh, chased after, you know, if, if it's too late. In any case. Uh, and they basically give ults and whatever else. It, it, again, the conclusion is the, the thing that's uh, very uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. So, now that I've gone through this, and again, it's this guy's book. It, it is his polemic, and it makes a lot of good arguments. I'm not looking to ask anybody to take his conclusions, particularly the preterist stuff in here, because yeah, I'm not I'm not 100% on board with any of the conclusions, but it, it is interesting, and he makes a good argument. But the uh, the whole thing is is an argument sounds good until you hear both sides. So here's my challenge: certainly, in the 170 years or whatever that have gone by. Somebody's written a rebuttal to this. There, there's a book that refutes or destroys all these um, accusations or arguments that are laid out. I'd like to know what it is. So if any of the listening audience knows or knows where I can go and find a good resource that would confront this, I'm all in. I'll read it and I'll give it a review as well. Likewise, if there is a 
criticism along the same lines of the various reformed or reformers. Well, I guess, you know, Calvin, Luther, Knox, Wigley, not them personally, but more about what they changed and the problems with what they've changed. I'm curious as what that would be as well. And again, I want to draw the distinction here. None of this, none of this should be ever thought of as supporting or representing the idea of disillusionment, the idea that we're in favor of, you know, disassembling faith, right? We don't want that to go away. But we want a better understanding of why we believe what we believe. Whether you self-identify as Catholic, Lutheran, some other branch of Protestantism, uh, or Baptist, or Oriental Church, Coptic Church, uh, the various branches of the Orthodox Church. If we're all worshiping the same king, and we all believe Christ is that king, on the whole, we should be okay. Does that mean that maybe our various streams of faith don't have some stuff that's a little out there, a little little off maybe, something that makes people uncomfortable? I mean, I'll be the first to tell you. Some of the some of the charismatic stuff, yeah, I'm, that's not my thing. Definitely. The the Pentecostal thing, yeah, I I not not something I'm comfortable with. Does that mean that I don't believe they're believers? No, not at all. It just means that that's not my thing. That's not my way of worship. That's not what I'm comfortable with. So who am I to doubt their faith? Who am I to question their the cause of Christ on their end? There's a lot of stuff that gets done in every stream of faith that is under the banner of Christianity that is off-putting the other people. And I don't know that we're ever going to synchronize this, which I, again, not a fan of synchronization and the ecumenicalism is, is somewhat problematic as well, in my opinion. But if we can just get past seeing each other as mortal enemies, get past seeing each other as um, a problem. There are a whole lot of things we got to deal with in this world. Number one, first and foremost, is the pre Christianity paganism that's on the rise. Secondarily is Islam once again seeking to assert itself in other places of the world that it's not already at. And historically that's not worked out very well for anybody that's not Islamic. So I would not say these are petty differences. They are sincere differences and some of them are even significant differences. But ultimately if we're all casting uh, our lot in that Christ came here and died for us and we willingly follow him, we should be able to overlook a whole lot of other stuff and deal with the lost or the people that are actually coming for us before we worry about what our brother and sister in Christ is doing. Just my thought on it. Now, that being said, I'm the first to call out progressive Christianity. I'm the among the first to call out... Um, <laughs> Social gospel Christianity, the name it, claim it, you know, gospel. These are all problems. They're all issues. And I don't know if it's the parishioners, right? The, the the members of the church that are the problem. I think it's the leadership. And if we can hold the leadership accountable, we can push them into a position where they have to answer for what they're doing. That's a far more effective way than dealing with it than attacking our brothers and sisters 
that are just like us, members of a church, members of a parish, whatever you want to call it. You should never fear understanding what your faith is. I don't advocate deconstruction. I I don't think that's a net positive, especially the way deconstruction is done right now. But understanding, going back and considering, why do I believe what I believe? Why is this important? Where does it come from? What is the representation of? I think that's all a net positive. And you got to be willing to do that. So again, one last thing. Let me remind you. If you've got a polemical book that goes the other way or not only refutes it, but points out the fallacies or problems on the Protestant church, I'm in. I'll read it. Let's do it. Send me the information. Text me. Email me. Whatever your preference is. Or you can message me, right? Like I said, I'm on Facebook. I'm on MeWe. I'm on Gab. Uh, My cell phone is not hard to find. Last four digits are 1852. If you want to go to the trouble of texting me, if you call and leave bad messages, I just block you. It's not that big a deal. And my email, it's according to callus at att.net. In case you didn't catch that, that was according to callus at att.net. And once again, let me remind you, this show is named according to callus because it is based upon what I know and what I believe to be true and accurate doesn't mean that I don't get things wrong. It doesn't mean that I don't misunderstand things from time to time. I'm human. I don't think I'm perfect. (laughs) As a matter of fact, we were just talking about the one person that was perfect, right? Uh, Christ our King. There we go. Yeah. That being said, call it out. Not afraid. Have no fear. And uh, I guess I went even a little bit longer today than I... uh, did on the original uh, version of the recording here. But again, thank you for listening. And until the next episode, I will see you on the other side.